This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebel, hope you're doing well. My guest today is Krista Dancy. Krista is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she's got over 17 years of experience in the fields of psychology and trauma. In her office in Roseville, California, she provides compassionate and evidence-based care for a variety of fertility-related mental health issues with special emphasis on trauma and birth, both for provider and patient. She also serves as co-director and clinical supervisor at The Place Within, a nonprofit that makes community counseling affordable for those who may not otherwise have access. Krista is the founder of the Birth and Trauma Support Center, a nationwide organization dedicated to providing trauma-informed training to providers and professionals. From her lens as a certified birth doula and mental health professional, Krista holds great optimism and warmth for each person in the birth room. Her work and passion is to see trauma-informed medical care become the norm and to see providers and patients thrive. Krista is someone who brings a deep curiosity, intensity, and passion to her work. I really admire the work that she's done in the area of birth trauma, and I was really grateful to have the opportunity to speak with her and share her story here on the show. And so now, here's my conversation with Krista. So tell me, Krista, what is it that you are rebelling against? (laughs) So I knew you were going to ask this question, and I felt like (laughs) my first off-the-cuff answer was like, what am I not rebelling against? But I felt like that was probably not super helpful for our context. So in this space, what I'm rebelling against is really business as usual or the status quo as it pertains to medical care generally, but specifically maternity care. That's my passion project right now and has been for quite a while. I guess at this point, we should just call it, I don't know if we can call it passion project anymore. It's my life. It's what I'm doing. We will very possibly touch on some of the other rebellions oh, that I've you're engaged in along, along the way. <laughs> cool. So we'll see what, what comes up. Um, but this piece specifically around maternity and birth trauma is a thing that I know has been a real important topic for you and something I think a lot of people really aren't necessarily very informed about. So I'm looking forward to being able to explore that. And what I w- want to start with is asking you about how did that come to be a topic that mattered to you? How did you become aware of it, engaged in it? The only way I know how to answer this is really to tell you the story and walk you through it. As I started out as an early therapist, I was just really fortunate in that in my internship, I had a lot of combat veterans come to me. That was just kind of luck of the draw. I enjoyed working with them. And so they were my first introduction into understanding PTSD and trauma generally, which was just so wonderful and love those folks and love the work that I did with them. As I grew and worked through my licensure process, which can take several years, I started attracting new moms to my practice as well because I was becoming a new mom myself. So it was this interesting cross-section of combat veterans and new moms with their babies were coming in and out of my office. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a fun image. I like that. It's like you can see see them crossing paths in the waiting room. You're like, that's a cool juxtaposition there. something about that that just really feels right to me. I don't know. I just loved it. And although they were coming to me for other reasons, generally, like transition into parenthood and couples counseling and depression or anxiety, what I started to notice was that more than what you would think 
started to have symptoms that looked a lot like what I had already known to identify as trauma or PTSD as a result of their birth. And at the time, I just didn't know how to make sense of that. I didn't know any place that was talking about that. This was a while back. I don't even know that I had access to Google. If I did, I wasn't that good at it. I couldn't find information and I was searching. I was searching for experts, for books, for referral sources. Who could I send them to in the area? Who could I send them to in the country? What could I go to to learn how to treat this? And really kept hitting a wall. I even, um, as a young student, was so motivated that I would do very obnoxious, embarrassing things like go to these big conferences and wait in long like book signing lines for like trauma experts and then be like, I don't want your signature. I actually just want to ask you about this topic and just kept coming up empty handed. I remember one of them saying, I don't know what's going on in the birth room, but I imagine it can't be good. <laughs> that was about as far as I got. So over time, realizing there wasn't some place to send them, there wasn't some expertise to deliver them. I decided, okay, I've got to figure out how to do this. I've got to teach myself. I've got to learn. And so that was the beginning of, I always say it's like the specialty that chose me. Now I have access to all this beautiful research literature on the subject. And I do know that there are other people such as Cheryl Beck who are researching it at the same time. I just wasn't aware of their work at the time. So now we know that if you look at trauma, depending upon how it's measured and in what context, approximately 30% of people who give birth have trauma symptoms as a result, which is just astronomically high. That's crazy. Uh-huh. It's such a high mm-hmm. number. Okay. So then I started to pursue it. I became a certified birth doula, which for those who don't know is a non-medical birth attendant. So an expert in like the emotional and physical support of birth, but I don't actually catch the babies or do anything medical. Um, I'm an advocate for them. I help them with comfort measures. I help them with the physiology of birth. I help them prepare for their birth. I help them debrief after birth, but not a medical provider. And so I had all this opportunity to observe birth and then that's where it took another turn, which is why I started saying, I'm just rebelling against the whole system. Here's why. Because I'm attending a birth with somebody that I'm very close to as a doula. They had a certain clinical presentation and I watched their provider go from warm, connected, jovial, joking, patient, kind to as soon as that presentation occurred, clipped, cut off, fearful, impatient, demanding. And it just happened right in front of me, just like that. And because I was at this point working with trauma literally all day, every day in my office and had been for so long, I knew exactly what I was looking at. Tried my best to help get her back. I'm not her therapist, so I had to be careful, but tried to engage her in conversation. And and the most I could get out of her, I said something to the effect of, I imagine you've seen this go bad in, in your experiences. And I just got this kind of death stare. And her response was, yeah, you think in 23 years of doing this, you think? That was like the best I could get. So that was the day when it was a lightning bolt after I recovered from the downstream effect of that response the provider had and how that impacted the way the birth continued from there um, and impacted the care. It was this light bulb moment of, oh my gosh, this cannot just be trauma-informed for one party. It has to be trauma-informed for all parties in the room for this to work. So that was when I realized, oh, the nurses the obstetricians, the midwives, everybody in that room, I started looking at their trauma rates. Guess what? Between 25 and 40%, depending upon how you're looking at it, fully diagnosable PTSD with flashbacks on the whole thing. And so when you look at the average birth, which usually has four to five attendants, maybe more, the likelihood that somebody in there is battling untreated PTSD is incredibly high. 
Then you look at how many people giving birth are survivors of maybe sexual assault trauma, physical abuse, domestic violence trauma, and then the trauma that occurs as a result of birth. And I was like, oh my gosh, this whole thing. We got to infuse all of this with the thing that we're so lucky to understand. We're so lucky. We understand how trauma impacts interpersonal dynamics and behavior. But people outside of our world are not getting this life-changing information. So that, so then again, the, the niche that chose me just became this expansive, like, desire to wrap everybody in that system with support, compassion, love, evidence-based care, understanding of what was happening. The thing that strikes me, or there's really a couple of things that strike me is the biggest one is just your determination to address this. And I hear you kind of being critical of past you for, you know, standing in line to talk to these doctors and all this stuff. But I think about that and I'm like, that's awesome because that's how things change. We need people like that who are going to be like, what's the deal? What's going on with this? Do you know anything about this? All of that. And to focus on that a little bit, I'm curious about that piece of you. Is that kind of just a nature of your personality? Is that something that's about who you are? And, and like, tell me about the, the background there, about you becoming that person. Then we're going to reconnect to this birth trauma work. Yes, that's such, I love that question so much. I'm laughing because I think anybody who's known me would say that's always been me. My mom likes to joke that she decided when I was young and I went through the why stage, that she made a decision that she was never going to dismiss it that she was going to always give her best answer. And she jokes that if she had only known <laughs> what the end result of that is going to be, maybe she would have not chosen that as a joke. But I remember a classmate early on saying, if I ever have a question about what the teacher is saying, I don't bother asking because I know if I just wait long enough, Krista will. I'm going to give a lot of credit to how I was raised. I think I, I naturally came on the scene asking a lot of questions, but that could have been squashed. That could have been discouraged. Absolutely. And I think all too often it actually is because anyone who's had a kid, who's had a kid go through that phase knows that sometimes it's like the questions, they just keep coming. And it's on the one hand, it's really awesome. And you want to nurture, you know, and support that at the same time, at a certain point, it can get tiring. I can know a few times I've told my daughter, it's like, I love that you're curious and I can't answer any more questions today. I'm closing up shop for the day. <laughs> Clearly you had this nature of yours, whether it was more than average or less, who knows? But the point is it was really actively supported and nurtured in your childhood, which is great. Now I'm wondering also though, because I can imagine it's something that may have not always been seen or received well as you've gone along through the journey of life. So where has it uh, led to maybe difficulties or challenges for you? I think like most people who find themselves in some ways outside the norm, which we all are in some way outside the norm, whatever that is. That, and that thing in which we are different from the average is this blessing curse mixed together. It certainly has served me well. And it has also, I think, alienated people unintentionally, particularly authority figures, teachers, bosses, who see my questioning as challenging fairly because it often is, and but that perceive that through a lens of hostility or rebellion or some kind of malicious intent, where most often it was just this genuine desire to engage. And so I found that going through my education especially upper levels of education, I would have some teachers that just I totally clicked with. We just really vibed. And then I would say that was not every teacher. Some teachers 
were just like, you're a pain in my ass. <laughs> Can you just let me get through this? Please don't do this anymore. And so, you know, over time, I learned to be more selective with maturity, but it took a long time. It took a long time to realize, okay, that's not always perceived. It, the, the way it's intended when I come that way is usually this um, intention of engaging with what's happening. I'm like, getting in there, sort of imagining in my mind, like forming Play-Doh. Like I'm like trying it out and seeing where the edges are on this and how it functions in other ways. And to me, this is like curiosity and learning and engaging with the material in a way that for me, I show respect to a learning process because I'm interested, right? I'm not zoning out. I want to understand. But how it's felt sometimes can be painful for people because it can feel like questioning that comes with unkind intention. And I remember being in certain environments where that wasn't always enjoyed or received as a positive for sure. So I'm going to call attention to Krista focusing on how like that affected others and trying to find (laughs) empathy for others. She's totally in in therapist mode here. I'm being so careful. Um, But but I also want to ask about for you, because I can imagine at times when that curiosity that again, you'd had so actively nurtured as a child was responded to with this sort of negative thing. I can imagine that would be challenging and maybe even painful at times for you. Yeah, absolutely. Early on, it was painful because I didn't understand it. As kids, we can perceive rejection. We can perceive being disliked, but we don't always have the context to to be able to draw a line A to B to C to make sense of why that just happened. And so I can think of times with teachers where the end result was feeling shame, feeling rejected, As I grew older and I started to understand more why they were not happy with me and it felt so out of alignment with what my intention was, I usually ask questions because I I care and I'm interested and then to receive anger, defensiveness, it felt so out of alignment that as the confusion went away, it just started to hurt. It just hurts to be misperceived. It hurts to feel like, oh, I was trying to make a connection there and instead of totally piss them off and they don't like me anymore and aren't going to like me the rest of the semester. (laughs) That was really painful during formative years for sure. And there were many times I actually would just, I just hate that about myself. And as a result, hate myself and be like, stop. And so try to fall into silence. Don't do it anymore. It bothers people. But I just, it just couldn't stop for long. I, I would try to stop. It would happen again. Oh, shut up, Krista. And then the cycle continues. So how did you ultimately find reconciliation with this conflict between on the one hand saying, okay, this is who I am, right? Clearly you were just driven. You almost couldn't stop yourself, which I think is a good thing. But at the same time, you're hearing these occasional negative bits of feedback or picking up on people's tone or facial expressions and such and really being hurt by that. But it sounds like you got to a place where you really were able to see what's behind that and be at peace with it. But how did you get to that point? I actually don't think I got to that point until adulthood. I don't think that I was able to get to that point in my youth and not even in my early adulthood. I still had such a conflicted relationship with that part of myself because every so often it would be a huge reward. Every so often there would be something really great that would come out of it. What happened in adulthood was actually a lot of it was in parallel with my relationship with becoming a therapist, just as I was exploring becoming a therapist. So number one, I had to stop working for other people, if I'm being very honest. I just, I couldn't work for other people anymore because in 
I had a really successful corporate job straight out of undergrad that I was thriving in. All the measurements were great. And I was constantly struggling in that structure because it turns out that is a structure where asking a lot of questions is, again, not perceived as friendly. Troublemaker. Yeah. If you're like in a corporate meeting and you're saying, (laughs) this doesn't make sense to me why we do it this way. Like middle management's not really interested in entertaining that question and you're actually causing a lot of trouble and it's perceived as problematic. So number one, I had to, I had to change my context if I'm being very honest. I don't think I thrive in that environment still to this day as an officially middle-aged person. I don't think I thrive in that environment. So I had to work for myself and I happened to fall into a career therapy where asking questions turned out to be a good thing. Asking the hard questions turned out to be an asset. Like the the willingness to ask the honest question, to ask the honest, obvious question that is side skirted by most people turns out to be an excellent therapeutic skill. So I took this thing about myself that is just really not liked in a lot of contexts, but I found a context where it fits. And that is where I started to learn to appreciate it in myself. And that right there, like that's such a, at the risk of using a cliched phrase that people might hate, that's a life hack right there, folks, because it's about taking this piece of yourself that is so core to who you are and how you engage the world and then finding the place where it's not a problem, but where it's actually an asset. And absolutely, of course, in the realm of therapy, it's an asset. So how, how did you make the switch or make the decision to switch to becoming a therapist? I had studied psychology because frankly, it was the only classes that I really liked. So I figured I may as well get my degree in it, but I didn't have any long-term plans to go into the field. It was like, I'm just going to get my BA and then I'm going to go get a corporate job somewhere because psychology is pretty general. It looks good to employers. You understand people, you can be a manager. So I thought, okay, that's the path I'm going to walk. Got into corporate world, turns out not naturally happy at it which was really interesting because to be succeeding at it and also miserable is a strange juxtaposition, but it just was a bad fit for my personality. Really bad. Because fundamentally, if something doesn't make sense to me, I ask a lot of questions and I can't settle. So I was just like never settling. So here I am, successful career, newly married. And then I said, I just can't do it anymore. I just fell into a depression. My husband was super supportive, quit my job, aimless, really aimless. I quit my job without a plan. I didn't know what I was going to do because my whole plan had been corporate life. And I found out that I actually hated it. And I just, again, at that time was like, I've just got to figure out how to fix this in me. I've got to fix this part of me, find a place that I'm happy so I can continue on my merry way. Couldn't figure out what to do. So I did what a lot of people do when they don't know what to do with their career, which is I'm going to go back to school. That's how that happened, to be honest with you. And so I already had my undergrad in psychology, so I'm going to get my master's in psychology. And at the time, I thought maybe I'll go into research or maybe I'll go into some kind of upper level like HR type thing. I'm just going to get my master's. Started my master's program and ended up meeting a professor there who was one of the first authority figures outside of my close people who saw this aspect, not the first, but one of few who saw this aspect of my character and liked it. And so I asked him my question as I normally do. And most professors would scoff and and get agitated. And he was like, so engaged and he's a therapist. And I knew that I needed to get some hours for my practicum to finish my degree. So I thought I'm going to do it with him because he, he gets me and he supports me in this. He doesn't see this as a problem. He sees it as a good thing. And I credit 
actually his influence with why I ended up becoming a therapist. Because when I started out in my internship, I had no intention of even finishing my license. I had no intention of long-term becoming a therapist because in my mind, a therapist looked like a certain thing. And I wasn't that thing. They had all these edges, all these sharp edges that needed to be sanded down. And I was trying to sand them down. I was failing at it, but I'm not a great listener. I'm not soft and warm. I'm not all the things in my mind that that warm, just like maternal vibe. I just didn't have it. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to do this. And quite frankly, it was his influence of how about you just bring your whole self to the process and you just allow yourself to be authentic in your experience with them and you stop evaluating everything so damn much. And you just be with people and let's just see what happens. And guess what happened? Magic. (laughs) Magic. So I went into my first therapy session, literally like in the bathroom all morning, so sick. I couldn't even imagine it. I was so scared. I was so young. Everything on paper was terrible. It was this couple that was far older than I was. I was inexperienced. I I was like shaking on paper. It was just this terrible setup. And then the door closed and we were in there together. And it was just, it was as if I was experiencing the thing that I had been trying to get at all along, which is let's have these really honest, no holds barred, anything that is true can be said, can be explored without defensiveness. Let's have that kind of engagement. And by the end of that hour, I was like, whoa, okay, wait, there's something here. Maybe I don't have to look like the thing I thought I had to look like. Maybe it can look like this. Yeah. Obviously, as you discovered, that's the case. I've heard variants on this story so many ways where it's, we've got this aspect of who we are and it's misaligned. And so it causes all this friction and difficulty and conflict and self-doubt and all of these things. And then we find the spot where it lines up and suddenly like there's this synergy that happens and the energy behind it is just this like, whoa, that kind of experience. It sounds like that's totally what happened. Yeah. And I just was, it was so funny because I say I felt ass backwards into this. Like I did this, I'm going to complete my degree And again, looking back on that time, it was a very dark time because everything was under this cloud of what is wrong with me? Like, I have all these skills. I have all this education. I am succeeding, but unhappy. What do I need? What is my problem? I have everything on paper that should be working and it's just not working. And how, what edge do I need to stand down so that I can go live, you know, a normal adult life. And so for me, that's a life I found now. That's a lot of my process, which is like fuss and fuss and fuss and fuss and fuss and agitate and agitate. And then one day it lands me in this spot where all the agitation suddenly makes sense. And I go, Oh, I was just in the wrong context. There is a space where not only will people tolerate me asking pointed questions to explore inconsistencies, but they'll like pay me to do it. (laughs) Like it's what they're there for. It's what they're hoping will happen. Like what a treasure. Well, and where it will actually make you stand out even. Not even just like you can do this and it's okay. But I think, and you've seen this, not all therapists are as willing or comfortable to ask difficult, challenging questions for any number of reasons. And you are, you're willing to take this edge that you were so busy trying to sand down. And now you're able to use it to cut through things that are so important, right? To get at. So I I think it's, it's really cool. So this is a, this is a a fabulous story. I've now been doing this for about 17 years. This is an old story, but the layers of healing that have occurred over that time, it's even hard to express fully because it's that little child inside who was being told over and over in, in different ways, both overtly and subtly to stop it is being told not only 
I like this about you, but this actually helps me. And watching it not just be accepted and approved of, which feels good, but watch it do good. Watch it help others. So people aren't just tolerating it. It's doing something meaningful in the world. To me, that's just, I walk away from it going, are you kidding me? Like I get to do this every day? Can actually get paid for I it? Know. Oh, okay. <laughs> maybe this work thing maybe isn't so bad after mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Yeah. What's so funny is like, I w- people can't see my face right now. It's such a mixed bag even today. Even though I found a space and a context in which it's a gift and I love it, there is still a strong internal voice that would, in a, in a weak moment, would trade it if I could. Would just like really like to be able to blend. That Those moments are less than they used to be. But this idea of being able to just be content in the status quo and do your work and go home and like, that's cool. I just, I have zero chill, zero. I have zero chill in me. And it looks so nice. The people who have the chill, like I want to have the chill. It looks like they'll probably have a longer life. I just think there's something really beautiful there, but that is not the wiring. That is not what's inside. And so instead, my best option is to just lean into it. Really, that's just my best option. But I wish I had a little chill, like a little. It would be great. There are probably moments where you do or you can find it. I'm curious, though, I think any of us who are walking any kind of non-standard path occasionally have that voice. It was like, what the hell are you doing this for? Why don't you just go along with her? And so, you could do the like you could just like take option A. Exactly. Um, yeah, you could. But I, but I think maybe this is true for you. It's certainly true for me. There was a time where I did that or tried to do that. And it's not too much of an exaggeration to say it almost killed me. And I can hear that experience for you in corporate America and such. I can't do that. It's just, it's just not something you're probably capable of. Not without a cost. Not without a cost. And that's the thing is that you can shave off pieces of yourself, but not without a cost. Not without a cost. When they ask the question, like if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, that's a lot of what I imagine telling my younger self is it's going to be a bumpy ride. You're okay. You're okay. I know that the fussing and the agitation is painful. I know the rejection is painful. You're okay. So when that other voice, that annoying voice, it's like, why don't you just like chill here? When that shows up, how do you deal with that voice? What are the things that you figured out to do to keep it from grabbing the steering wheel and swerving things off the road for you? So part of it, I can't take credit for because in the moment where the voice is saying, shut up, I can't help myself. I can't stop it. I can't help myself. Where that voice gets really mean and abusive is after the fact. When I replay the conversations in my head and I replay what just happened in my head afterwards, you know, the like Monday morning quarterback kind of thing. That's when the voice is oh stupid. And you go down the shame spiral too much. I'm too much. I talked too much. I said too much. I wanted too much. I, I shouldn't have asked that. They probably misinterpreted that. That voice is still very present. The difference is that it's not that voice ever went away. It's that I added other voices. So that voice is still very much present, but there are other voices like the child inside who's just giddy at all the places where it does work. And the wise voice inside, that kind of wise maternal voice that says, you're okay. You're okay. Maybe it wasn't perfect. Maybe there were some snafus, but like, I mean, you're human. That's okay. Trust yourself trust your good intentions, trust the relationships you've built with people, let them tell you if you're a problem. And there's ultimately no value in this sort of raking yourself over the coals over something that's already best. 
And now I'm at a point where it's really fun because being at the age where I am, I, I get to ask myself fun questions like, what other ways can I adjust my life and my work to make who I am an asset? And so now, and so to answer your question in that Monday morning quarterback, some of the question I now am trying to insert is, okay, so if that didn't feel like that fit, why didn't it fit you? And what would be a better context for you? Instead of, oh, I did it wrong. Think about like how that didn't fit for you and what would have fit better. That's great. I love that. Yeah, I'm going to steal that one for me. It's like, where can I point this instead? It doesn't work there. Fine. Where does it work? But it also sounds like you've built up you've built up kind of a committee that, yeah, sure. There's still this one, this one person on the committee. Come on, would you just chill? But you've got these other voices that you've brought into the mix that are more supportive, that are engaging, that are coming from a different place. And so the overall conversation, it sounds like is much more suited to keep going. You're on the right path. Here's what you need to do. Yeah. As my mentor would say over and over during my internship process, like, what if it's not you? You just, what if, like, just entertain that for a moment. We're not making a determination of whether it is or isn't you. We're just like, what if it isn't? What if it's not you? What if it's something else? Then what is the something else? I also love the openness of that. Just the question of like, uh, let's explore other possibilities, whatever they are. Cause it just, it's so freeing when you get away from this rigid view of you're bad, you're wrong into this more, just, I don't know. What if it's something else? What, let's look around here. An example I can give in more current times is I have a tendency to, my mouth just runs away with me, especially if I'm enthusiastic about the topic. And I've just been like, oh, so many times after that, after feeling like I've done that. Well, But in the context that it works actually is in the context of educator. It works great to be that passionate about a subject that you can riff on it for three hours is actually an asset in that context. In the last few years, I've been doing a lot of provider education, mental health providers and medical providers and nurses. And in that context, once again, I'm reliving that therapy moment of like, oh my gosh, at the end of class, people are engaged because the level of passion and curiosity and the way I engage with their questions is different, I think, than the average, because I know what it feels like to have a burning question. So I see it through a different lens. And so in that context, again, not only is it acceptable in this space, but it's actually helping people in this space. That's so healing. Oh, wait, it's good and it helps. We all, if we go through our past experiences, whether it's school, whether it's training classes, we can think of the example of that one teacher or that one instructor who was just like fired up. And I, I had a high school teacher like this. I took him for every class I possibly could because I loved him so much because he just brought this awesome energy. And it was just, it didn't matter. He could be talking about anything because he was so caring about it and so interested and really brought this energy. You were like, yeah, this is fabulous. But in this case, for you, we're talking about something that is an important thing that affects a lot of people that is still largely not understood or not really known about. Tell me about, as you have gotten more and more involved in this work, what are the blind spots, I guess, that are out there that you're trying to help fill in about this, about the effects of it? And where is it necessary for there to be changes or shifts made to start addressing this? Hmm. So there's this big, I consider it almost like a, I don't know if we want to call it a second or third professional evolution, which is 
I was doing therapy for this issue and it was my niche specialty for quite a long time. And I reached this point where that, I guess if you want to call it the inner rebel, I call it the reformer inside. I've got this really loud reformer inside of me who just wants to like make everything work better all the time. And I'm working with people and working with people. And honestly, I cannot keep up with the demand. And it just felt like I'm at the end of this assembly line that is just hurling new mothers off of it so fast. And I'm trying to catch them and catch them. And I'm just not enough. There's far too much demand. It's like drinking from a fire hose. I cannot keep up with it. And more are coming every day. So when I reached that point, I was really, I think, in danger of, I could see the trajectory in front of me of burnout. That I think that's how therapists and, and people who care, people who like make a career out of caring. I think that is one of the ways that they end up at burnout, right? Because they've tapped into this pain point and this need that's so huge that. It, at some point, it it takes all of you and you don't have anything left. And I knew that's the way I was headed. And there's this beautiful quote about pulling people out of the river. And at some point, you have to go upriver to see why they're falling in. I'm paraphrasing, but just this beautiful quote that really resonates for me. And it was this moment of, I have to go upriver. I cannot keep catching people downstream. It doesn't feel good to my soul. I feel like I'm on the worst cleanup crew ever. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. And simultaneously, it is so preventable. If the people on the other end of this just had any support around the subject, any education around the subject, so preventable in the vast majority of cases. Of course, we have those cases where the trauma occurs because there's a severe obstetric emergency. And I think that makes sense on its face to all of us. If the mom or the baby are in danger of losing their life, it's very traumatic and we can wrap our heads around that. But the vast majority of these stories are not that. They are stories where some of them, a lot of them are even medically normal births in which they still walk away with symptoms of trauma and violation. And I wasn't heard and I wasn't safe. And so it was this moment of like, I've got to go upstream and figure out what's going on. So I started out as a provider educator on the subject of preventing trauma because I believe it's highly preventable. And in the few cases where it's not preventable, it's highly treatable. And if people just had information, because I just believe so deeply in education. So that was the starting point. I want to pause you there because you said a lot of it's very preventable. So can you give us some quick things about what are some of the key things that people can do to help prevent this and minimize the risk of, of these traumatic events occurring? In summary, our understanding of trauma as a profession has grown leaps and bounds in the last couple of decades, and particularly in the last about 15 or so years. With people like Francine Shapiro discovering EMDR, people like Dr. Bessel van der Kolk writing so much on the subject of trauma, what I understand now is even different than what I was taught in grad school. Now I understand trauma as this central nervous system response. And why that's so important is because the current zeitgeist around trauma is that it's like a failure of grit or it's like a failure of optimism or a failure of faith or a failure of gratitude that we won't have trauma if we just learn to look on the bright side. But what we understand now is that it's a central nervous system response. It has to do with the way your memory processed the experience. It's a brain response. And so you can have gratitude and have trauma. You can have fortitude and have trauma. You can be a strong person, a positive person, a person of faith, a person of resources and have trauma. The two have nothing to do with each other. And so PTSD is not weakness. It has nothing to do with weakness. And remember, so my introduction was literally soldiers with PTSD. These are like tough, badass people. And that's part of why they struggle to seek help because they've been taught that trauma is this sign of weakness when actually it's really, honestly, it's a central nervous system response. It's your brain thinks that it's doing the right thing and what it's doing is actually not helpful and it's very treatable. So for me, I wanted to 
get that information to people for in the first place because we need to destigmatize and we need to spread the good word, which is, hey, guess what? It's treatable and it's preventable. And so knowing that it's a central nervous system response, then we change the conversation because if the conversation is I have to, as a provider or a nurse, I have to attend to every emotion in the room, which is so hard because providers are so overburdened in our modern system of care. I have to attend to every emotion in the room. I have to see every vulnerability. I have to also make sure that nothing scary or unpredictable happens, which is not in my control. Then forget it. I give up. I can't prevent trauma. But if we understand trauma as a predictable outcome of certain sequence of central nervous system experiences, then suddenly it opens up. So what I say is trauma is not the same thing as difficult. We are wired to endure difficult experiences and to be resilient. We can arguably say through all of humanity, we have given birth and through all of humanity, we've endured difficulty. Trauma is not a foregone conclusion of something being difficult. It's particular things didn't occur or did occur that made it more likely for your memory to store it as a traumatic memory. And so giving that information both to trauma survivors and also to people in a position of caregiving, I think that one piece of information is like all, in and of itself completely changes the lens, right? Like it's so hopeful and it's so actionable. So then I just teach them like the how-to from there. But that's one of the things I want, I want everybody that I talk to to cure that. The other thing is because of the way that trauma impacts the central nervous system, it can masquerade as things like anxiety or depression and look like anxiety or depression. And so my personal belief is when we look at postpartum statistics, which right now about 20% of people who give birth have um, a diagnosable mood disorder of anxiety or depression or the other less common things like OCD or psychosis, about 20%. But if you look at the overlap on the Venn diagram between, for instance, anxiety and trauma is a very large shared space, really large shared real estate. And why that matters is because you don't treat anxiety the same way you treat trauma. Now, how could one differentiate? And I'm asking more from a, a layperson standpoint, which they may or may not be able to do. But if someone's experiencing some of these things, how do they tell whether it's anxiety or trauma? Normal memory goes like this. I go to a dinner, I have a good time. And for a short time after, all of the memory is living, not just accurately, I don't, it's not just vivid, but it's vivid in my body. If we could measure it, I would even salivate to remember the dinner. I can hear the music in my mind. I can smell the, the food before I taste it in my body, in my somatic senses. I have a somatic reaction to the memory for a short time after. I sleep on it, that fades a few more days go by, it fades much further. After a few weeks or months, I'd be hard pressed to even remember. And unless something interesting happened at dinner, besides the dinner itself, at some point, it just becomes fact. Like, oh yeah, I remember we went there. I like their food. And that's normal. That's normal memory formation. That's what your brain does because it can only hold so many details at once. That's typical memory formation. It goes from this visceral experience into just fact that we hardly even think about. So traumatic memory starts out vivid and particularly vivid in the senses, sights, smells, sounds, tactile sensations. The difference is that your central nervous system, for a bunch of nerdy reasons that we don't need to get into, processes it in a way that keeps it current. That is the hallmark of trauma. And once you understand the sort of origin of trauma, then you can start to suss out the symptoms better because it's this current imprint that is the hallmark of trauma. It doesn't matter how many years have passed. If something triggers the traumatic experience, which is usually a sensory cue that our brain has decided is connected to the trauma somehow, our body will start to respond as if it's current. 
our pulse will elevate, we'll start to sweat, we'll start to breathe faster, we'll feel dizzy, we'll feel nauseous, we'll feel angry, we'll feel agitated. And what's important to say here is that unless you have somebody talking you through this, you're not always sure why that is, especially if you're somebody who has a lot of trauma from, for instance, childhood. You're not always, you're, it's not always in your conscious awareness, but an example of this would be a mom gives birth. She thinks she's fine. Birth's hard for everybody, right? No big deal. She goes to her six-week appointment for her postpartum care and walks into the bathroom at the clinic and washes her hands in the smell of the soap. All of a sudden, she's breathing fast. She thinks she's having a panic attack. She feels like she's going to throw up. She's not quite sure why, and it's the smell of the antiseptic or the soap. When people are in a position of care or when people are like looking at their own symptoms, they're a bit like, is this trauma or is this anxiety or is this depression or what is this? The hallmark is your body's reacting as if the past is current, even though logically, you know, it's not. And that the origin of it came from a particular experience. It just wasn't always your reaction. Yeah. Essentially, we're talking about like a flashback of sorts. Yeah. And with severe trauma, it can look like a movie playing in your mind. Sometimes you'll even lose touch with what's happening in the room around you. And I think we're used to seeing that depicted in media. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the flashback can also be a bodily flashback. So you're not replaying it necessarily in your mind, but your body is behaving as if it's a replay. And that's where it can start to look like anxiety and it can start to look like rage and it can start to look like irritability. And if you're dissociating from those symptoms, you're disconnecting from those symptoms because they're overwhelming. That's when it can start to look like depression, numbness flattened affect. So for me, it's so important to get this, the word out because it's super treatable. It's super preventable. Just a little bit of information goes a long way and it often gets mistaken for other things. Yeah. I could totally see how that would happen for a lot of reasons. And you can imagine, cause we know in our profession, how much like attachment, early attachment matters so much. And when you have a new parent trying to attach with their newborn and newborns are demanding under the best of circumstances and they are recently traumatized while they're trying to grow into this new role as a parent, while they have sleepless nights, while their body's healing, you know, while their relationship has drastically changed and everyone's trying to figure it out, no one's getting enough sleep and everybody's, you know, stretched. You can imagine the downstream of how that impacts like the bond, the relationships in the home. So it's powerful to me is this knowledge that actually it could be treated pretty rapidly and then look like, you're not traumatized and you get to try to figure out being a parent, not traumatized, which is just, infinitely just a little easier. Bit easier. I'm sure. Yeah. Right. And to me, that's exciting because it has generational impact, right? Like we know this Huge. multi-generational processes. Huge. Huge. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. The ripple effect mm-hmm. of treating this is gigantic. Yeah. I, I can, you know, I can see that. I had a client once who I was helping with trauma. She had an older child and I was just my favorite thing ever because she sent me, I think it was an email about midway through our work and her trauma. And she said, today my son came over and sat in my lap and I realized that I felt it. Yeah, it makes me get teary. And I didn't know I wasn't feeling it until I did. Thank you. Yeah, wow. That's really powerful. Mm -hmm. In general, what does this work when you're doing it with, let's say, a new mom, what does this work look like? What are the kind of things that you work on, focus on? How does it proceed? So my favorite tools for trauma are brain-based tools. And that would include EMDR. If people are not familiar, that stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. 
what I'll do is I'll put a, I'll put a link in the notes for people who want to learn more about it and can find some information, but it's a, a commonly used therapy technique for treating trauma that's been shown to be specifically effective in treating trauma is the quick summary. And what's important to me is that it's evidence supported because when somebody's struggling with trauma, and I think that it's not coincidence that I ended up working in trauma because trauma is a pretty intense specialty. When somebody comes in in a highly traumatized state, as compared to like if somebody comes in, for instance, because of relationship difficulties or because of depression, you know, somebody comes in a traumatized state, it's intense in the room. There's a lot of emotional intensity. It turns out that's my jam. I'm going to, I'm going to step here in here on something because some of you who have experienced relationship conflicts and difficulties are going, what are you talking about? That's really intense. And I don't disagree, but Krista's also right that trauma and trauma work relative to relational difficulty, it is a whole other level of intense. So she's not misspeaking here at all. It's just giving you uh, an idea of just how intense that can be. And I, So this is my bias, but I would say that I think when couples are particularly intense in the room, it's because at least one of them is triggered. They have their own trauma that's been unaddressed. I, I think you're probably right. My, I, my experience when I worked with couples would support that, I would say. But so I like to do EMDR. The other thing I liked is related to EMDR. It's called brain spotting. It was founded by David Grand, who was an EMDR trainer. I really like the use of it. I'm also trained in Ericksonian hypnosis. I don't do hypnotic inductions anymore just because it's not my vibe. I don't, it's very effective. It's just not how I like spending my day because I like the intensity more, but I use that to inform the work I'm doing because it helps to regulate the central nervous system. And so we have to get the central nervous system downregulated for anything to be successful. They're not going to hear anything I'm saying if they're in the middle of a triggered trauma response, they can't hear me. So I have to have those tools. Those are my favorite strategies. There are other ones, but what I like about these strategies, particularly we know from the evidence of EMDR, I mean, looking at the large body of evidence that exists that you can get access to for free online. I want to say it's like with three 90 minute sessions of EMDR for a single incident trauma, single incident, like a car accident for a single incident trauma, it's like an 84, 87% cure rate. Like after three sessions, like 87% of people no longer have PTSD. That's just an amazing response for somebody who's been living with trauma potentially for years. And would you characterize birth trauma as something that is falls into the category of single um, incident trauma or? There's a couple pathways into this sort of birth trauma grab bag. Okay. One of them is I talked about before, which is like obstetric emergency, bleeding, baby's not breathing, baby's stuck, something just like acute catastrophic emergency. The team comes rushing in. That I would consider single incident. However, sometimes it's followed by things like NICU experiences, complicated healing, which are other layered traumas. But by itself, it's an acute single incident trauma. There's another one where sometimes, and this is not as common as I think some people see, but it is still does happen and is worth mentioning. There's this underlying issue of what's been coined like obstetric violence in which the caregivers in the room are behaving in a manner that is violating, that is assault. And so again, I think that falls under the category of, of single incident. It's like we have to discharge the, the it's like they've been a, the victim of an assault. And so we have to work through that similarly. Can you give me a specific example of what that might look like just to help everyone understand what you're talking about when you say that? Yeah, I'm trying to think about how I can do that delicately. Just knowing that the statistics on how many people statistically are listening that probably have survived some kind of assault. I'm trying to think about how I could describe it in a way. I, I've heard a lot of stories, a, a lot of stories. Here, here's a hypothetical slash true story I've heard more than once. Sometimes patients are difficult and not easy to like, and care providers are exhausted and have a lot of 
risk management policies breathing down their neck and are expected by higher ups to get compliance from their patients. And so there is a natural way in which our current state of affairs sets patient and provider at odds. And what breaks my heart is the people who are creating that dynamic are not in the room. So then the provider now leans on the nurse to get compliance from the patient because the nurse is in and out of the room the whole time. So the provider's on the phone saying, I need compliance because they're worried about whatever the consequences could be to their profession. And then there's the personality element of this person is really chapping my ass. Just do the thing. Then we add the fact that providers and nurses have all experienced bad outcomes. They've all experienced the loss of a baby, the loss of a mom, the hemorrhage that could have been prevented, the surgery that should have been started sooner. They've all, if, they're, if they've been in it long enough, they have had some very gnarly experiences that they are holding inside of themselves and trying to forget. So when you put that all together, there's an intensity towards getting compliance, even in, and I think this is so important to say, even in providers and nurses who do this job with good intention, but they want to keep their job. They want to be able to pay their bills. They want to be able to pay their student loans. They also want you to live and they have trauma that's been unaddressed and they're afraid of bad outcomes. All of that comes into the room and creates an environment where I've seen all kinds of things like unanesthetized procedures forced internal examinations, forced surgeries while patients are screaming, they're strapped down. I've been told multiple stories of doing things like internal examinations in unnecessarily aggressive ways because of all this tension and anger. And when you add that, perhaps the person receiving that is like also the survivor of some kind of assault and you layer that. So that's where it starts to become, and I, I want to add, because you'd ask, is it all single incident? There's this other category in which no assault occurred, no obstetric violence occurred, but for one reason or another, it still felt scary. It felt out of control. It felt confusing. They didn't understand why it happened. It was more complicated than they were expecting. That element of shock contributed to the sense of trauma. And so there's this third category of, it's the accumulation of all parties. It's the accumulation of the confusion. It's the accumulation of shock and exhaustion and pain and unaddressed concerns that has come together to make it traumatic. And so I don't know that it always falls under single incident in that case, to answer your earlier question. Right. That makes sense. And it also, I think that goes to illustrate that sometimes something can be experienced and internalized as traumatic that might not overtly appear to be so. Mm -hmm. Right. Because oh, a yeah. piece of this, as you said, is how your brain interprets this experience mm -hmm. and, and how it interprets it. And there's any number of things that can drive that. And so I say that because I think sometimes people who are experiencing like full-on trauma symptoms who absolutely are in a state of PTSD, the incident that precipitated it is something that could have gone under the radar. Yes. I think that's very, I think my experience anecdotally, it's more common than not which is why the education piece is so important. You know, like here's an example. We know that there are elements after a hard experience that make you more likely to develop trauma. One of them is if you are physically restrained from acting. So we look at, for instance, the victims of September 11th, those who were, because they were pinned, because of whatever happened around them, they were unable to take action, far more likely to develop trauma than those who walked out of the building, walked across the bridge, walked home. There's a way in which we are able to complete the process and satisfy our central nervous system through taking action. And 
our current system of care around birth often means that is against the rules. There's a lot of facilities in which literally the person giving birth isn't allowed to get out of the bed. And so if they are feeling restrained and they're feeling like they're not allowed agency over their body, it's really not a surprise to see these numbers of 30% of them walking away with trauma symptoms because what's happening in their body is painful and intense. And if they're being prohibited by external forces from taking action, then there's one simple, easy change that sets up our central nervous system to create traumatic processing of the experience. You and I could probably have a very extended conversation about risk management and yes. risk management practices and the problems that they actually cause, mm -hmm. because this is an example. And I get the idea of risk management and concept, but here you have a case where risk management policies are actually increasing incidences of trauma, yes. which is exactly the thing they are in theory supposed to be preventing. And I think anyone who has worked in healthcare, anyone who's worked in mental health and has seen some of these things knows this. And I think it's a thing that a lot of us are just like, you've got to be kidding me here. Well, so this is what's interesting. So risk management in a hospital setting is not trying to decrease trauma. It's trying to decrease lawsuits. It's trying to decrease lawsuit liability. And that's important. That's important because what I want to see systemically is I want them to start measuring this as an outcome. So like, we're not just going to measure how often lawsuits come out of it and how often the lawsuits succeed. But let's also measure things like the downstream effects of trauma, such as substance abuse, suicide, postpartum complications. Suicide's a really big problem postpartum, but also postpartum like infection, chronic pain, chronic pelvic pain after this, difficulties breastfeeding, difficulties with mother-infant bond. Like it, let's actually measure the outcomes because if we're going to measure that outcome in that, in that singular focus, it seems like the right choice. So if one out of a thousand are going to be high risk if they get out of bed, then let's keep all 1,000 in bed. But if we're only helping one out of a thousand and in the trade-off, what, 300 of them are traumatized. To me, that's a faulty calculation to not have that as part of the math. Yeah, relative risk is such an important concept. And that's what you're really talking about here is the idea that, because the idea that we can eliminate risk is not realistic, but we can be conscious and deliberate about which risks we choose. And that's what I'm hearing here is you're recognizing that by choosing to focus on minimizing the risk of lawsuit or actually increasing a whole bunch of other risks. I'm also going to say, hearing you talk about this, I think if you're not careful, you might end up transforming the healthcare system. That's the goal. <laughs> she's so for everyone who can't see fist Kristen bump. right now, she's she's fist bump. Yeah, she's she's pretty she's pretty pumped about that idea. I Which think. is so it's just it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous idea, but that would be like that's you know the more that I pull at this thread. Okay, so I go into a situation with a couple and I've got this idea of who's the villain. You spend an hour getting to know them and empathize and care about them and you leave. There's no villain. I work within a family. I'm seeing their teen. I'm like, oh my God, there's so many problems that we got to fix. I bring the whole family and we sit together for an hour. No villain. I can't find the villain anymore. There's people making bad choices. There's people who need to make different choices. But nobody came into this with all the information and all of the healing on board and decided to just cause harm to somebody else for the hell of it. That's just not a thing that exists. So at least not in my world. I'm not saying sociopaths don't exist. I'm just saying like there's a nature nurture argument there. So within the larger system, it's I started out thinking we've got to help patients. And we've got to do better for patients. And then I started hanging out with the providers and the nurses and they would come to me, Steve, they would come to me weeping after these classes about the times that they felt cornered 
into choices that didn't feel good or that they felt cornered into performing in a way that would satisfy so that they could keep their job, they could keep putting food on the table, they could pay for their student loans while they're receiving horizontal violence, hierarchical hazing, they're being chided and chastised for anything that they try to change within the system. They're being punished overtly or covertly for any change they try to create in the system. Their mental health access is a joke. They're not given any mental health care. These are people who hold life and death in their hands. They're not given any mental health care that's meaningful for any of this. The trauma that they will incur as a part of their work. So guess what? Like we got it. We got to keep going. We got to look at this. This is what I say all the time in my work that I do. Like it has to be trauma-informed for all of us, or it won't be trauma-informed for any of us. I can't go to a provider and say, give trauma-informed care to your patient while they're being traumatized without care. That doesn't work. I think you're right, and you've really highlighted there's this this huge problem in the system as, as a whole that any, anybody who's had, I think, connection or interaction with it knows on some level over the years at times on the therapy side of my work, done work with a lot of doctors. And we talk a lot about the challenges of, of this system that is just, it's a machine that because of the different pieces of it, there's almost no way to not end up getting burned out at some point. Well, and then we just added COVID to this, right? So the statistics of PTSD and OBs before COVID was something like 20-ish, 20-ish, like 24-ish, somewhere in there. I'm going off the top of my head. I just looked up a recent statistic of OBs, PTSD rates, currently after COVID, it's now 38%. Not surprised. And every year, as we get more and more into a managed care sort of system, the the demands to produce more, to build for more, produce more, spend less time with patients, manage risks, manage the hospital risks, don't get us sued while seeing patients for less of the time, work longer shifts, less sleep. The, The pressures are literally going up every year among this group of people. And so what I'm seeing now is I actually started a new curriculum around how to heal your own trauma as a birth professional. It's a new curriculum that I just started teaching. And the response is just humbling and tragic. It's tragic to me that these are people who are literally providing expensive top-notch care to everybody they see all day. And they don't have access to a single point of support on this issue. It's just shocking. That should not be acceptable to anybody. No, absolutely not. This is so great that you have found this place, this issue that is one, such an important one, but two, that resonates so strongly with you because your energy and your concern and your caring and the intensity about it is so clearly there and so going in a place where it's really much needed, I think, and important. I thought about that because what I'm saying can be applied to a lot of care, like ER doctors, right? Oncologists, surgeons, a lot of what I'm saying can be applied. It's not only specific here. But why obstetric care has captured my heart is because it's such a lightning rod because of the downstream ends with the next generation. The downstream ends with the newborn. And if we can make a difference there, the the ripple effect is huge. I get super jazzed to imagine these newborns being raised in healed households. I think it's not a question of if, it's a question of how much. Yeah, absolutely. So not that you don't already have, it sounds like, kind of a nearly infinite number of of projects and things going on right now. But is there anything else that you've got on the horizon or that you're working on in this area that uh, you can or want to share with us right now? Oh, sure. Yeah. So 
where I'm at right now is in this beautiful space of just growth and synergy, and I'm holding on for the ride. I think to go back to the point of your podcast and helping people who are in that maybe earlier stage of agitation about an issue, but just feel like the oddball and don't really know what to do about it, but they can't seem to let it go. What I found is that if you hang with that long enough, far longer than you want to, eventually your people find you. But it's this act of faith because you would keep going for a long time before they find you and you just wonder, why am I doing this? But eventually your people find you, they hear, they hear your song and they're like, we're singing the same song, let's connect. And so there's a couple of really fun things that are happening. One is I am putting all of my curriculum for providers in like professional quality production. It'll be all out by at the latest Black Friday this year, but probably hopefully earlier so that it's available on demand for nurses and providers and and professionals who want to know how to prevent trauma and also how to heal their own trauma. And that's super exciting because again, everything I've been doing has been like, I'm running on a treadmill too fast and I've got to figure out a way to work smart because I can't work any harder. So I couldn't teach the class enough. Now this way, like that allows me to do other stuff. And now the class exists for people in their convenience. And, and that's, I'm excited about that. The other thing is, similarly, I've started working on, I haven't actually told anybody this yet. I've started, besides my people close to me, I started working on some workbooks, some complimentary workbooks. For a long time, people were like, write a book. And you know what? I kept sitting down and trying and it just could not do it. I could not feel passionate about a textbook sort of academic writing on the subject. So instead I am I'm putting it into the template of an interactive workbook. So I'm asking questions, they're responding. I'm giving information. I'm asking questions, they're responding to help nurses and medical providers work through their trauma. And then with the goal of following up for like the patient end. And so I'm hoping those will both be done by the end of the year so that it gives me again, this way to, it's all about me trying to weigh out balance between allowing my passion to guide me without allowing it to burn me up on the launch pad. How can I keep meeting this demand without it feeling demanding? So my last question for you would be, uh, when do you sleep? (laughs) You know, it's funny. On one hand, I realize when I talk like this, I sound like I just work all the time. I actually feel really lucky because I don't work all the time. (laughs) Like every Friday, I don't work. My husband and I, we go hiking. I go on super long hikes. We are fortunate. And then I live near the foothills and it's a beautiful area in California to hike and be outdoors. I get to see my kids for dinner every night. I think that this is where the intensity of my approach, and I say this not as like self-congratulations, but to the listener who again is feeling like something's wrong with me. I should be more normal. The fact that I have zero chill turns out to be an asset because if you want to get a lot done in a short amount of time, you, you really can hyper-focus. Like I'm all in when I'm all in. I don't hear anything around me. And then when I'm off, I'm off. I've seen some people live this beautifully balanced life moving in and out of tasks. I'm a terrible multitasker. Terrible. So instead of multitasking and instead of this beautiful sort of Zen approach of moving among all the things I need to get done, I find that works better in chunks. Right now I'm writing, then I'm doing an interview, then I'm parenting then I'm making dinner. So actually I feel like there's a great deal of balance there. That hasn't always been true. Definitely in past years, I have worked too much. 
it sounds like what you found is that for you having a relatively strongly uh, set up structure that has these very clear boundaries around this is for this piece of my life, this is for this piece of my life, helps you to uh, make sure that you create space for all of those things and are able to to keep that balance. It sounds like that's the way that you found. Yeah, that's the thing that works for my personality, because I can tend to be pretty out of touch in any given moment with like my body or my emotions, (laughs) because I get so focused on the task at hand that it's really helpful for me. Instead, I've learned that in a moment of contemplation to create and structure my day with intention. So then, for instance, after you and I are done talking, I have a buffer of time that I'm going to get a snack, go for a walk before I start my next thing. And so if I structure it for myself, I do myself a favor that way. I just follow my own. I boss myself around. I follow my own rules. That works. Yeah. It sounds like you figured out the ones that work for you. And I think that's a lesson for all of us to experiment and figure out what are the rules that work for us in creating the kind of life that we want. Which for me goes back to what we were saying earlier. It was this profound shift. And I really, some of this is just honestly age and working with clients, which I think therapy is like being a therapist, you learn so much. You learn so much working with clients. So, you know, what if it's not me? Like, instead of being like trying to shove my square peg through a round hole and make myself work in the way that others work, what if I just assume there's nothing wrong with me for a minute for the sake of just exploration? Just why not assume it's not me and say, okay, what would fit? What would make me successful? What would feel good? And you know what? Nine out of 10 times, there's like a way better answer there than going down the shame spiral. So Krista, one thing that I like to do with guests who want to play along is take a few minutes to put my coach hat on instead of my podcast interviewer hat and work with them a little bit on a challenge that they're currently wrestling with. So if that's something you would like to do, then we'll take a few minutes to do that before we wrap up. Oh yeah, sure. I know exactly what it is. Okay. Well, so so tell me what's the challenge that you're wrestling with right now in your business? Um, I feel myself at a tension point between the therapist identity and the public identity. And that's been something brewing for a while. Brewing is the wrong word. It's been a backdrop issue probably the whole time I've been doing this work, which is there's the therapist energy, the therapist self, which we're largely taught to be pretty. Our backdrop of like psychoanalysis in our profession, it's be this blank canvas, be neutral, be unbiased. And there's a lot of value in that. And I believe in that, which is directly at odds with what our current media rewards. And so what I notice is, especially as my classes get seen, I get asked to speak more. I get asked to teach more. I'm writing a book. There is this sense inside myself of a tension point. Even in the uh, biases I share, the stories I tell, the opinions I share, because it's not something I would do or say in therapy. And I know my clients are probably going to hear it. And so there's a sense of lost neutrality. I'm afraid that it will feel like a loss of neutrality for them if they hear me in some kind of interview or something saying something that's, oh, I said the opposite to her when I talked to her last week. And there's something there, same parallel, in parallel. Here's the other side of that same issue. As I see the reach and the impact expanding, and it's so rewarding, and I, you know, fist pump about like, let's change the system. There's pain because there's only one of me and I have two young children. There's pain there because I can't do both fully. And I've been trying to straddle both because I love my clients. I love my clients. And as I shared, like therapy is so rewarding for me. I love it. 
But at some point it starts to become, okay, how am I going to spend my Tuesday? I could meet with five people before I pick up the kids from school, or I could work on this book, or I could teach this class to 150, or I could do this podcast interview, or, right? That tension starts to feel like, gosh, I, I can sense inside myself to circle back around to what we talked about earlier. I can sense inside myself the agitation of this isn't quite fitting and I cannot figure out why it's not fitting. What do you think is getting in the way of you seeing what the the right fit or the best, I'll say the best fit is here. Because I think one of the things I'm hearing is it's not like one of these is good and one of these is bad. They're all good. That's it's the problem. just a question of, right, because <laughs> exactly, that's the problem. All good. And it's a good problem to have that we can, I think, sometimes get caught up in guilt around, right? Is, oh my God, I have all these good choices because you and I both seen the challenge of people who have nothing but bad choices. And it's about helping them make which is the best of these really bad choices, which is just awful. But in this case, you're like, I have multiple good options, but I'm realizing that trying to pursue all these things isn't really something that feels very workable and doesn't quite feel right. Yeah. Because there's going to be a cost. Of course. Right. There's One of these things is going to get the short end of the stick. And what it has been up until recently, as a personal note, my uh, dad passed away recently and he had a long battle with cancer and I was a really big part of his care. That was another thing that was like, I can't even think about these big picture questions right now because I'm, as anybody who knows who's been in that space, like I am absorbed by this and just getting by right now. I'm just doing my best to keep my head above water. As I process that and heal and move through the grief of that loss and heal my family and the impact of that, what's very clear to me and very visceral is a desire that it is not my family or myself who gets the short end of the stick. I'm in a period of pause and of contemplation, which is a luxury where I get to consider moving forward how to do that. So if if it's non-negotiable, my family will not get the short end of the stick. I will not get the short end of the stick. Well, then between the therapist persona and we'll call like the educator persona, what's the, because sh- <laughs> I can't do all the things fully. They've expanded at this point, my private practice, also my nonprofit, also the educating I'm doing, they've all expanded and they all have nothing but potential ahead of them and they are all rewarding. And I cannot infinitely expand all of them to their full potential. Like at some point I reach the outer limits of what I can do and come home at the end of the day. So is this a thing, because I I can see at least two hypothetical ways of addressing this. One is bringing others into it so you can have your hands in all of them in smaller ways and have others helping. Another is to be more focused so you're, you're able to really stay fully involved. Now, of those two routes, is there one that feels more right or more aligned with you? Depends on the moment. <laughs> if I'm being totally honest, it depends on the moment. Yeah, I like what you're saying about like bringing in other people because I think that is where my head is at. It sort of happened in small steps. Don't you feel like these things happened in steps and then you look backwards and you're like, oh, that is what I was doing. But at the, as it's happening, there's no grand master plan. You're you just have no like, idea. You're yeah, laying laying this groundwork and you have no idea you're walking this path until you look back and you're like, oh, hi, look at that. So like, for instance, I instead of producing my own stuff, which is its own skill, it's its own skill with equipment and learning and a learning curve and a commitment required to learn. Instead of that, like I'm outsourcing that to people who know how to do it better and like it. So that I am on that path of like, um, you know what? I'm having an epiphany. So, you know, we were talking about how I don't like working for other people. 
I don't necessarily like working with other people very much either because of the same reason. That's not a very nice thing to say. I like people. I just don't like working with. Maybe it's an uncomfortable thing to say because we've all been giving these stories about you need to be a team player and you need to do this and that. And my take on this is some of us are just for whatever number of reasons, not someone who works best as part of a team, but we are someone who works best on our own. I, I think there are people who are genuinely that way. And that might be a bias because I think I'm one of them, <laughs> but maybe that's you too. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so yeah. So I'm having this epiphany because part of my like settling into myself and letting go of that shame voice was giving myself permission to do that and to be sort of the loner doing following my own calling. And I love so many things about that. I mean, I can follow a hunch. I can get a wild hair about birth trauma and explore it. I can't, you know, like it's so great. But what has also happened is over the years of expansion of reach is that I've, I think I've reached a critical point where doing it alone and doing it all are not sustainable. And so part of what is having to be chosen is like, okay, so then do you stop doing it or do you stop doing it alone? <laughs> and I think that's, I'm realizing as we're talking, like that is a little bit of my hangup is that to go back to what we talked about earlier, like I think there's some wounding there about letting people in on the vision, asking for their help, realizing that there will be negotiation and potential disagreement and rejection. And that doesn't feel good, but the alternative is keep trying to do it all alone. That doesn't feel good either. Right. Yeah. Or the alternative of do some piece of it alone and let go of other parts of it. Yes. Yeah. Which when I have this, as you can hear my voice, like this passionate, like I'm going to make all the things better. It's really hard to let go of potential reach. Oh, no. I, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is obviously a, a thing that I think is best given some time to kind of sit with. I will ask you this though. So just got response. What would you do if you knew everyone affected by it would be okay? I'm going to have to sit with that question. What would I do if I knew everyone affected by it was going to be okay? Because intellectually, I believe that. Intellectually, I believe they're going to be okay. Intellectually, I don't believe that I'm really so big and important that people aren't going to be okay without me. But emotionally, there is a felt sense of responsibility that I think it will take me some time and some solitude to like unwrap that and say, okay, if I really hand that back over, I like that. If everyone would be okay. So what, what we're going to do, Krista, is you're just going to have to update me on this one because obviously there's some some thinking on this one that needs to happen for you before, you're, before you go anywhere. So we'll all have to just stay tuned to, to see what you come up with and where you go. Well, you've given me good things to think about. I'm going to think about what would I do if everyone would be okay, if I knew everyone was going to be okay. I love that, that phrasing. Another thing I'm going to think about is like where I'm potentially, maybe even unknowingly restraining myself from the solution because it would involve involving other people. <laughs> And like work through that inner rebellious teenager who solved her problems by doing it herself and who's like probably balking at that. So yeah, I'm going to be very interested to hear how, all that, how that sorts out. Um, <laughs> Curious. All right. So Krista, tell me where, for those who want to learn more about you and about the work that you do, where is the best place or where are the best places for them to find you, connect with you online? Oh gosh, that's there's so many places. I am on Instagram and Facebook. So I've got a social media presence there. So anybody who's comfortable in those platforms, both for myself and the work that I do with birth, I, I it's under the heading of the Birth and Trauma Support Center. So both of those are online. And you can find both myself and the birthandtraumasupportcenter.org 
You can find my information under thepsychologyofbirth.com. You can find my classes. And it, it's a, right now, it's just a massive spider web that goes to like my private practice, my classes, my, all of that stuff. But my intention moving forward, I had to really slow down because of my dad's health decline. So my intention is to that later in this year, there'll be like some great stuff around. Oh my gosh, if COVID will allow, I would love to do some in-person, in-depth trauma healing retreats, groups, classes, encounters. I'm just like chomping at the bit. <laughs> Please, can we do that? I'll put it, I'll put links to everything in the show notes, folks. So Krista, I want to say thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk and to share all of this, both about the really important work that you're doing, but also about yourself and your journey. Because I think it's one that a lot of folks can take a lot from and may really help them in figuring out how to take that that sharp edge, as you put it, of theirs and use it in a really constructive way, which is, I think, one of the things we all need to be working on doing. I love that. I sincerely hope so. I know that helps. We talked about how at some point, if you keep following this inner passion, you end up where you come to the end of the known road, right? There's nobody out ahead of you anymore holding a lantern saying, go this way. You've come to the end of what's known and you have to start finding your own path in the dark, sort of one step at a time. And I think when you get to that space, the best information is to listen to other people who've also been in that space and like try to take from it what you can. It's not going to ever directly fit, glean what you can. So I love these conversations you're having with people because I think they're just that. It's like, listen, their story is not my story, but I hopefully people can take from it something that they can go, oh yeah, okay. I hope that would be really good. I have no doubt there's going to be plenty that people can take from here. So yeah, thanks. Thanks again for coming on and sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.